the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. Okay, this episode has been a long time coming. Eliza Robertson is here. She has been my astrologer for a number of years now, and honestly, my entire business and much of my life is run around electional astrology provided to me by Eliza, meaning she looks at upcoming transits and lets me know auspicious times to take action for certain things I want to do and inauspicious times when I should probably just lay low or like it's not a good time to, you know, put a new offering out or um, it's not a good time to be very visible, that kind of stuff. So I think though what I love the most about working with Eliza is that she is a writer, a real writer, a gifted writer, an awarded writer. (laughs) And the way she writes and the way she expresses herself verbally really sings to me. Eliza is an author and researcher and astrologer based in Montreal, and she holds a PhD from the University of East Anglia. She's published two books of fiction, one of which was selected as New York Times Editor's Choice. She began formalizing her astrological studies at the Faculty of Astrology in the UK. She has gone on to study Hellenistic and electional astrology and orrery. She co-hosts an astrology and occult podcast under the banner Cosmic Tonic. And she is currently the director of content for the Chani app. You know the Chani app. Chani Nicholas, another beloved astrologer, that Chani's app. At Witches New Year this year, an event happening on October 15th and 16th online, Eliza will be presenting the astrology of 2023, so giving us a heads up about important transits in the year ahead. But today, I really wanted to dive more deeply into Eliza's work as a writer because I've been lucky enough to hear some of the inside scoop about the process of writing her current book. It's a true crime novel with a gripping story, and as Eliza shares with us here, perhaps a certain amount of soulful guidance from the other side. So Eliza, what identities do you lead with? I lead with the fact that I'm a writer. I suppose it's one of my main ones that I'm trying to (laughs) recenter, and I'm an astrologer. Um, and you could add to that, which, but it's not normally the identity I lead with, but in the present company, I can lead with it. (laughs) Oh, that's so great. So that, that is something that you would have a strong relationship with is the identity of which? Yeah. Yes. I would say so. For how long? Like, when did you know that? Um, since I was a child, I don't know. I mean, I was, I, I came of age in the time of the craft. (laughs) So (laughs) it might've just been like the leaky pop culture at the time was sort of infecting all of us who were children in, in the nineties. But, um, I think it goes beyond, obviously does go beyond that as well, but there was something, I think watching that show and, and other shows that chimed with me and that resonated with me. But Mm -hmm. I just remember being, you know, you, 
even as a child, you, you find like-minded people. And I remember being with my cousin, who's also a witch, and we would, as children, as like eight-year-olds, we would be going to the the local library and trying to find the occult section and you know, getting <laughs> spell books. Um, I had one really close friend at the time, and I remember we would we had some sort of book, some sort of spell book, and we tried to cast a circle in my playhouse. Um, and it was odd because it was it was July or August in Victoria. It was warm. It was like a hot day. And we, we did this, some version of casting a circle, and then it started hailing outside. It was really <gasps> strange. Uh, <laughs> so and then, so of course, then, you're like, I have been initiated. Exactly. I, I was <laughs> proclaimed a witch. <laughs> I can control the weather. So it is done. So must it be. (laughs) And when did you know you wanted to be a writer? That came later. (laughs) I actually, I find it really interesting when you have extreme reactions to identities like this. So either attractions or repulsions. I've always been attracted to being a witch. Like that's always a word that resonated with me. But I remember um, I'm going to out myself as, being a superficial child, but I remember watching Harriet the Spy when I was very young. And in Harriet the Spy, at least in the film, there was, uh, I I think it was Harriet's friend and Harriet's friend's father um, was a writer. And I remember they they were portrayed as being very poor. Like they were portrayed as not having very much money. And I remember there was one scene where I think Harriet pretends to drop a $20 bill on the ground and, oh, it's, this is belongs to you. And I think it was something about that shame around money that I I, like witnessed. I watched that in the film and I thought I'm never going to be a writer. This is the last thing I'm going to be. And I, um, it's it's funny because I didn't, you know, we always had enough to eat growing up. I don't know where that came from. It didn't really, my parents were concerned about money in the normal way, but there was not, I I wasn't coming from an extreme lack. I don't really know where, where that fear came from, but I decided to be a lawyer. And then, and there were other reasons why I wanted to be a lawyer, but that was what I committed to really from around the age of 10 until I was in my third year of my undergraduate. And then I was taking all of these courses for to prepare myself to go to law school, essentially. And I remember there was just this moment where um, my brother, who was still in high school, was ta- was writing poems by the fire for his, you know, his high school writing class. And I was really stressed studying for my poli-sci midterms. And I just remember looking at him and looking at what I was doing and thinking, I don't want to do this. This is actually mm-hmm. not what I want to do. And I, when I have these moments, I make very life-changing decisions immediately. Like the next really? day, I walked across campus and I changed my faculty and I signed up for creative writing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I did it. I made a deal with myself that if I failed all my writing classes and I was clearly just not cut out to be a writer, I would I, – like my deal was that I would have to keep up my GPA so that I could go to law school if I wanted to, but I mm. – um, didn't. <laughs> I went to writing school. <laughs> well, that's very inspiring. And also it kind of makes sense to me because I do think that, well, obviously you have to be a really excellent writer to be a good lawyer. And, mm. 
And I think to be a very good um, writer, communicator, poet, you have to be smart. (laughs) You have to be eloquent. You have to be clear in your thinking. So I can actually, when I, knowing that about you makes me go, oh yeah, I could see that. I I could see this path making a lot of sense actually. And you would have been a great lawyer. You would have been like an environmental lawyer or something like that. Yeah. The world would have needed you, but I'm glad you're a writer and just draw. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been a lawyer that wouldn't have made me much money either. Like I, I yeah. soon sloughed off whatever superficiality I had absorbed from the world around me. <laughs> I no, I really was. I was actually really passionate about, um, <laughs> like changing changing the constitution. Well, that's I don't know if it's the constitution or those the criminal code, but changing the laws around prostitution actually and sex work and like to make it more more fair and more safe for sex workers. And I I also did volunteer work at that time, like in, in college for, um, it's, uh, it's the lobbying offshoot of peers, mm-hmm. the, um, what is it? Prostitution, education, and something That's resource good. society, right? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I, I did, like I had, I had, you know, justice in mind when I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> so it, then it wasn't such a huge reversal to go into writing. I mean, I mean, it was, it, it was, it was centering creativity rather than centering, you know, uh, other, other values of mine and other explorations. But ultimately I think, I think it was the right choice. Mm-hmm. And then when did you know you wanted to be an astrologer? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like like the witchy stuff. I've always been intrigued by astrology, and I've always been reading, you know, books about it. Um, I didn't start practicing it formally or studying it formally, let's say, until twenty fifteen, and the turning point was um, a friend of mine was. This was my first friend, my first good friend to have a baby. And I remember I just wanted to offer my friend and also the the child like a really special gift. And I think I had in my mind um, like Sleeping Beauty. And you know how when the baby is born, she has these three astrologers yeah. <laughs> or, or, or witches, depending on how it's told, how the story is told. But I remember thinking, I guess like I want to do that. I want to give this child a birth chart reading. And so my initial instinct was to actually approach different astrologers um, mm-hmm. to do this. And I didn't realize that because I, I wanted a, like a written report and most astrologers do, you know, a, a real time session and that's not really appropriate. If it's a baby, it's not going to really benefit <laughs> from it. So, <laughs> so then, um, eventually after, after much searching, I just thought, okay, I'm going to learn this myself. That, that will be, you know, part of the gift is I'm going to actually spend years to learn this. And then when I'm ready, I'm going to give it to this child. Um, and so I, I did that. I started learning and, and then I learned so much that I realized actually, I don't know if it's ethical to, to like delineate a baby's future because <laughs> they can't consent to it. And right. there are so many different ways that the archetypes can show up and I didn't want to be prescriptive. So I, I never actually gave that gift, but I did become an astrologer. <laughs> and how old is the baby now? 
She was born in 2015. So what's, what year is it? She must be seven. Yeah, exactly. When are we? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So maybe 10, 11, 12 years from now, somebody will come and knock and then she'll be like, and it'll be that baby and she'll be able to say, okay, I'm ready. That would be lovely. The door is open. Yeah. <laughs> So great. Her name is so, Athena. Athena, the door is open. Oh, that's so beautiful. Okay, so now you write for the Chani app, which maybe in a second you can explain for folks who've never heard of that what that is. But um, looking at it, experiencing it, just understand it's like that seems like a ton of work. It just, it really just seems like a ton of work. And so I'm curious. What in your chart uh, makes being a writer of astrology, and maybe also at that scale, the scale, the volume, just all of it, what in your chart makes that a good fit for you? Yeah. I mean, I'll say too, when I started, I was doing a lot of the writing because we had such a small team. Now I'm doing a lot of the editing okay. <laughs> and I have, I have a few writers I have a team of four at the moment, um, um, but I'm still very, I still am involved in the initial writing and this, it's still, the question still applies because it's, it is, it's a, a huge volume of content. So for people who don't know, the Chani app is, um, an, it's an astrology app. So it has daily horoscopes and there are also the really huge in-depth sections on your own birth chart. Um, there's weekly contents. We have a weekly tarot poll as well as weekly workshops um, that have rituals and, and various things. Um, and yeah, it is a lot of content. It is it is a lot of content. <laughs> it is an overwhelming amount of content. I'm saying this too many times, but <laughs> um, I'm like every day I reckon with like, wow, this is actually a lot. Am I going to forget something? Mm. So in terms of my own chart. Um, it's a, it's a good question because, you know, I've had readings where I tell the astrologer that I'm a writer and they're like, huh, I don't see it. <laughs> <laughs> and like these astrologers, act, like I actually would disagree with what they don't see, but I, I might have a bias, but, um, and it's because writing is often the act of writing itself is often put in the third house. Um, and I don't have anything in the third house. So for just to rewind a little, a, the birth chart is broken into 12 signs, but those signs also overlay onto 12 different houses. And each of the houses ha has like a different life area. So the third house rules, writing and communication and other, other things as well. And so many writers do have a, a very populated third house, but not all of them. And I, I would also associate writing and all creative self-expression with with the fifth house too, which is the house that's traditionally associated with children, but also play, creativity, self-expression, pleasure. And I do think of books as being a form of progeny or, you know, any kind of creative output as being a form of progeny in a way that we're fertile. I'm really interested in bending our that word fertility and, you know, making it inclusive of people who, whether or not they have uteri, they don't necessarily have human children, or maybe they do, but that's not the end of their fertility, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, so I, I do have my, my son is in the fifth house. I also have Saturn there, which 
that's a whole other thing because (laughs) Saturn is like the party pooper of the solar system. And having Saturn in a place of fun, I think it's meant that I've started, I've all of my hobbies, I've just turned into work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all of my hobbies, I just took really seriously. Mm. Astrology, writing, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I really struggled to just have fun for fun's sake, which is something I'm working on and something I'm getting better <laughs> at. But it's like, I have to get something out of it. Like I can't right. just watch a silly movie. It has to be intelligent or I have to get something from it creatively. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying this is the way it should be. This is just my default. Okay. <laughs> um, the other the other piece of it is astrology has an area of the chart and that's the ninth house. So the ninth house is the part of the chart that rules over spirituality. It rules over astrology, law, actually, um, publishing, mm-hmm. any kind of like grand seeking and learning and um, also disseminating of ideas. And um, I have a loaded ninth house. So Mm -hmm. my moon is there. Jupiter is there. But Jupiter just makes everything bigger anyway. So, And then um, my north node and my midheaven, which relates to career and my Mm -hmm. law of fortune. So it's just a whole like menagerie. Mm -hmm. It's not really important for the audience to know like what each of those points mean. It's just a whole menagerie. It's a whole concentration <laughs> in that area of the chart. So it's it, to me, it's interesting that I've been interested in, in law and, and yeah. also writing and publishing and also astrology. They're all very ninth house themes. Wow. Oh, wow. That's very cool. I That's really nice, too, to hear how, you know, other people might not see it, but you see it and... I think that's really um, important for folks, especially I think if people have gotten a quote unquote bad reading, mm-hmm. like I've, I've had many clients before where when I recommended, like, I wonder what's going on in your chart. You should look. I've, I've had a surprising number of people say that for some reason they've had a bad experience. And so it makes them nervous now about going mm-hmm. back because there's a, they come away feeling I don't know, defeated, deflated, like there's this kind of fatalistic thing that's happened mm-hmm. um, in this reading. And it's nice, it's very reassuring <laughs> to hear an astrologer who's had readings that are just like, okay, so that's not how I would interpret it. That's a good, I think, reminder for folks. Yeah. And I, I really, I can't stress enough that, you know, if anyone has had a, a reading, like no one can tell you who you are. You know, we can, mm-hmm. astrologers can offer some wisdom and some ideas and some images that might be rich and that, that might be resonant for you. But ultimately, only you know who you are. Only you get to decide who you are. And mm. the thing is, like, these archetypes, they really do manifest in such diverse ways, in such surprising ways. And I I don't trust an astrologer who thinks they know exactly how it's going <laughs> to manifest for somebody. Because it, it's, you need to have that curiosity and you need to know that you don't know all of the answers, I think, to be a, to be a good astrologer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've watched this with people I know who are twins and it's mm-hmm. so interesting how they both, they both manifest such actually textbook aspects of their chart, but they, they manifest completely different ones. Mm-hmm. Um, because every sign and every placement, it has multiple meanings. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not going to manifest all of them. Like everything has, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily type things in terms of shadow and lighter sides, but every it's, you know, everything in astrology does have 
there's an empowered way to manifest a certain archetype. And then there's a way that might be a little more challenging or, mm-hmm. or, or, or shadowy or however you want to phrase it. But mm-hmm. um, I think there's, you can work with it all. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's one of the things I've loved about readings with you is you actually do, you know, you ask questions and you check, like, is this sounding <laughs> sort of familiar? And I know, yeah, I think for folks who might be new to oracular types of consults, you know, um, if they're new to astrology or they're new to divination, I think there's a stereotype that you go and it's passive and this person's just going to tell you, here's what it is. And so then when they're asked questions like, what do you see in the tarot card? Or how do you interpret this image? Or how do you interpret what I've said to you? They can feel like a little, I don't know, ripped off or they, Mm -hmm. or they don't like it. They feel like it's like prying or something or, or that, um, you know, this person is supposed to demonstrate to me the veracity of what they're saying, not mm. the other way around. And I think it's really important for people to recognize that, yeah, these are these are archetypes, but they can express in myriad different ways. And mm-hmm. it actually really does matter our relationship with them. And so, you know, I, I like that. I like it when you're doing readings for me and you're like, is this sounding familiar? Is this, or is it not? And then we can mm-hmm. like explore other aspects if it's not sounding familiar. Cause you know, it might not be the first leading expression of that placement. I think that's really helpful to know. Um, how much do you check your own astrology? Um, a good question I'm actually not not good at checking especially in the moment I'm just living my life <laughs> and then it might be a couple days later I'm like Wait, what's going on that day <laughs> this is an intense day <laughs> or you know every now and then it's not even so much because my my birth chart is like burned into my retina so I I don't really okay. need to check my own chart it's more I might have an altercation and I'll be like, what, what was going on? And then I'll see Mars was on the midheaven or something like that. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So I will look at that or I will look at what the moon is doing. I do check other people's people where I see someone going through a hard time and I'm like, Ooh, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, so it's you- help- I was going to say it's helpful because then you, you have a time frame too. If it, it's like, Ah uh, yes, this thing is happening, but you know it's right now is the peak of it, so it should be subsiding by tomorrow. That can it's comforting knowledge sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so you do your maybe you could define like electional astrology. Do you do that for projects and creative projects? Like I go to you for every single thing that I'm like Eliza. When in the next three months or six months should I do this, that, or the other? When mm-hmm. is it going to be good for writing, marketing, launching, resting? Do you do you do that for yourself? I do. Yeah. So so electional astrology, just to define it for people, when you elect a date, it's just you're choosing a date, kind of like a political election. You're choosing the the politician. I think that name can that word can be confusing because we so associate it with politics, but it's really any kind of choice. So with electional astrology, I consider it almost a type of magic because you're not actually letting yourself be a passive recipient of the cosmos. You are saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to look ahead and I'm going to choose this day where this auspicious alignment is happening. Um, 
to launch this venture. Now, what's interesting, and you experienced this, what's interesting is when the fates have their way anyway. And it's like, you can, you can do that. You can choose the date. I know you didn't choose your initial publication date anyway, but nonetheless, you we did do some electional astrology around that date and then the date was changed. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's just out of your hands. I mean, that's that happened with my date, actually. I'm, I'm a little bit furious. I haven't expressed <laughs> this to my publishers yet. But um, I don't think, well, we'll see. But <laughs> um, the original date they selected for my book that's coming out was April, I believe it was the 11th. And that's, that is actually a beautiful day astrologically. It's the day of a Jupiter Cassini, which is when Jupiter conjoins the sun. And it's a very, it's an auspicious, lovely moment. Um, but now it's been delayed a month and it's going to be right in the middle of Mercury retrograde. I'm like, oh, and I feel sheepish writing them and saying, can we just like go back to the other day or even push it forward? Yeah. I feel a little embarrassed, but I'm, I'm going to do it actually. I think I'm going to write. Oh <laughs> yeah. I think you should. I think you should. Yeah. For folks. So my date was October 18th and it was like quite lovely in so many ways. And then, and it's funny because, you know, the publisher had sort of been like, oh, but maybe we should be closer to Halloween. And I was like, no, no, I love the 18th. Let's keep it at the 18th. And then there was like printer, like paper shortage and stuff. So it was like, no, just to be sure we're going to push it back to October 31st. We think that's the best date because it's Halloween. And so then when I checked with you, you were like, merp. Like, it was like, this is not so good. But you put it in a good way. You were like, well, you know, you were looking for like, what's the bright spot? And all I could do is just be like, okay, well, somewhere in time, the intention was the 18th. And there's still kind of some power around that. So I still kind of kept working all my other stuff around the 18th. So like, in my heart, it's in stores on the 18th. But people will not see it until October 31st. Um, And then actually, in the end, like the books have arrived, and they're going to start to distribute and some of them will probably be in a store warehouse, but Mm -hmm. they won't be able to like, put them on the shelves until the 31st, which is like, so anyway, we, you know, I do my best. And I did a little bit of um, like remedial magic around that. And, you know, there are other reasons why October 31st will be a lovely day for my book to come out. Um, I I didn't want to go any later than that myself. Mm -hmm. But I think in your case, if it was like right in the middle of Mercury retrograde, I would definitely be asking for help. (laughs) I'm going to ask. I don't know if I'll get traction. I don't know. (laughs) My (laughs) editor, I think, will humor me at least in terms of the question, but everyone else will be like, who is this person? Exactly. This is like the weird, the weird aspect of having. I, I mean, literally, astrology is my bread and butter. It, it's, but it's not a profession that most of the world, at least most of the world in North America, takes seriously. It's true. It's true. I so did it's interesting. Have, it's weird. It is strange, and I did have though. I hired a, a a marketing company that was doing advertising and stuff like that, and they seemed to feel very proud of themselves that they knew what Mercury retrograde was and that they didn't program anything at that time. And they were like, you know, maybe you want to look. And my team was like, Heather, <laughs> we have to the minute when newsletters should be sent. We have to the minute when posts are going out. Like, 
yeah, we know Mercury retrograde. Like, don't <laughs> worry, we're working that magic. So, but it was it, it was refreshing to have another company that that was like, we don't plan any launches during Mercury retrograde. I was like, that's great. That seems like the bare ass minimum to me. But good, <laughs> God, you're coming along. <laughs> So can you tell us more about your book project? Like what what has been the writing process like and the creative process been like around this project? Yeah, this has been one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. (laughs) Really? You've written like multiple other things. What? Yeah. This <laughs> I'm is, surprised. Okay. This is not even comparable. And so I know that you know this, the backstory, but I'll share a little bit about what the story is because I think that will provide some important context. So I think first, I used to say that I didn't choose this book. I think that's not true. I did choose this book, but I didn't seek it out. I, but I did actively make a choice to pursue it. So I can't disown that. Um, but the... The book really did find me and in a way that I couldn't ignore. So I I was at the time living in England and I was finishing my grad school over there. And I I came back to Victoria uh, to my mom's house and um, yeah, for for the summer holiday, I think it was July. And my neighbor who'd lived up the, the road from me my whole life, she knew I was in town. We're, we're all friendly on that block. And, um, well, one day I, I came home and I found this, this, uh, envelope on my doorstep with my name on it. And so I opened the envelope and I was, I saw that it was from this neighbor up the hill and I was thinking it was going to be some kind of invitation or you forgot your jacket in my car when we went for that hike, which would be very formal to send me a letter about that, but you never know. (laughs) (laughs) And what, what it was, was um, a page, a letter from my neighbor telling me about her colleague from the Yukon 30 years earlier, well, at that time, 25 years earlier, who had been murdered. And uh, along with that page was um, two pages of notes or stream of consciousness writing by the woman who had been murdered, which had been cleaned from her computer, her office computer at the time. And someone had given these, this writing to my, to my neighbor, her colleague. Um, and for whatever reason, so my neighbor had unearthed these, these pages of writing from Crystal is the, the woman's name. Um, while I was in town and she just kept thinking of me. She said that my name just kept coming to her and she didn't really want to keep them anymore, but she didn't want to throw them away. So she, she gave them to me. And I think she knew she knew I was a writer, so I think she thought, well, maybe Eliza will do something with them or or what have you. Um, anyway, I so I read I read Crystal's writing and I read the story of what happened to her, and I just couldn't put it down. I couldn't, you know, it felt like a call in in a serious way. So Crystal was she was an engineer. She's from Ontario originally, but she was living in Carcross in the Yukon. And um, her best friend was in an abusive marriage. And Crystal was always, you know, supportive of her best friend and there to offer to offer a home, essentially, and shelter to, to her friend and also her two young boys at the time. And um, the husband, the abusive husband, just hated her, like considered her a rival thought that they were having a romantic relationship, though that's not ever been substantiated. 
and uh, really contributed to a, a local discourse of, that was super misogynist, super homophobic, even though like, there's also nothing to substantiate that Crystal might have been gay. That's not really known. Um, nonetheless, very just a violent man and was violent towards her as well. And eventually his rage reached a flashpoint and he ended up murdering Crystal. Um, and then he disappeared. So he he just vanished. And he, this guy was, um, he was an outdoors guide. So he was very, very skilled in the wilderness. And to, yeah, to this day, no one knows what's happened to him. There's a chance that he committed suicide. That's the police opinion now. It wasn't necessarily the opinion at the time, but that's the RCMP opinion now. No body has ever been found. No murder weapon has ever been found. But the Yukon is a very vast place. So it's, it's indeed very possible. And it's also possible, I think equally possible, that he hiked across the border. It was 40 minutes by car. He could have also gotten a lift somehow. Mm -hmm. And this is 1992. So border control was not like it is now. You didn't even need to show a passport Mm -hmm. uh, or even a driver's license, I think, sometimes. It wasn't even always manned Mm -hmm. um, at all hours of the night, that is. And yeah, and I think it's very possible that he he went to... um, to Alaska and just got a ferry to, you know, down to Bellingham or anywhere. And he could be anywhere at this point. So Mm. that is not known. And so this book has been, it's been a very personal journey of, for one, I spent a lot of time talking with Crystal's family. So her, namely her, her cousin, who's very close to her, who was very close to her and her brother, um, as well as her uncle, her dad had dementia and then passed recently. And then her mother also has dementia now. So they haven't really been able to engage. Um, and, and also for better or worse, <laughs> trying to follow the last tracks of this person who, who murdered her. Um, not, yeah, I, I won't give away <laughs> the, what came of that, but it's been a very um, involved journey of just of like investigation and also holding grief and also holding space for the kids. Okay, I've had to be very sensitive of how I approach the topic of death, because for me, and this is me as a witch, like it's death is um, it's a numinous space and like the veils can be thin and it's not necessarily a, a very, um, it's not necessarily always so like that world is not necessarily always so separate from us. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've had experiences that have been very weird in the pursuit of this mm-hmm. book. And at the same time, I've also wanted to be respectful and sensitive in how I talk about these experiences because mm-hmm. it's, yeah, I didn't want to just dis- distract or detract from, from Crystal and the main story. So, mm-hmm. but it, the reason it's been so hard is just because, well, many reasons, but I, I am ultimately, you know, telling a story about someone else's trauma and someone else's grief mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and someone else's life that has been lost. And so it I've had at moments like a lot of doubt about why I'm doing this or how, like if I should be doing this. And ultimately the family has wanted it to be published. Mm-hmm. So that's been my like guiding light and what has encouraged me but Mm. it has been yeah it's also been definitely the hardest thing I've ever done in my life (laughs) wow so okay two follow-up questions do you ever feel afraid 
that this will come out and that if this man is still alive, that he would come after you. This seems like very dramatic of me to ask, but like, I feel like that must have crossed your mind. And um, second, what is your relationship with Crystal now? It must almost feel like she's alive to you sometimes Mm -hmm. or that she's with you in the unseen. She must be, I would imagine. You can't. Well, anyway, as a witch, I just can't imagine you're like going back over these stories. And again, like understanding, I heard what you said that you want to be respectful and you don't want to discredit this story, especially if there are folks who, um, you know, if you, if they want to critique you as a Mm -hmm. person or discredit you, they'll go after your magical practice first, of course. So I I understand maybe you don't want to share everything about it, but what can you say mm. about your relationship with Crystal? Yeah, good question. So for the first one, it's crossed my mind. I, I have so many other fears around this book that my bodily safety is at the bottom of the list. Okay. I don't I just I honestly don't think that he would have if he's alive, he's gonna stay under the radar. He's not gonna mm. risk coming after me. He doesn't live in Montreal. Like there's so many places that he could live. It's not going to be here, I don't think. Um, If he's living anywhere, I think it's going to be in the U.S. somewhere, maybe Mexico or South America. I don't think he would be here. So even I don't think he'd be in urban Canada, essentially, which is more or less where I wander Mm -hmm. around. Um, So I, I think it's a low concern. I mean, my highest, this is not necessarily a grounded dream, but my highest aspiration for this book is that if he is alive, there could be some kind of re, you know, consciousness reawakening and just more awareness about who he is. And maybe if there is some individual who fits this description, like that he could be brought to justice and that has happened. And it always baffles me when it does happen, but you know, it'll be 30 years, 35 years later and people are found or people mm-hmm. get caught for whatever reason. So that would be, yeah, that would be my highest, highest aspiration for this book. But I And the fulfillment of your ninth house lawyer <laughs> path. <laughs> if I can say that. <laughs> oh, I, if I could see him on trial, I would die happy. Like I would, mm. uh, I would actually just take however many weeks off of work if I could and go watch that trial and mm-hmm. maybe write a sequel or something. I'm not sure, but that would, <laughs> yeah, I mean, for, for many, many reasons, but it's, it's really caused so much distress for all sides of the family that he's just, this has just been unresolved. Like he's just never mm-hmm. been brought to justice. And the most of the family members I've talked to also think like justice can't actually be achieved at this point, but they still want him found one way or another. So absolutely. And can I just say before you answer the next question about Crystal, it makes sense to me that a patriarchal institution like the RCMP would say, oh, he killed himself, giving him like the most generous benefit of the doubt. But that is such a rare outcome in gender-based violence. That is like so rare. The chances of him um, taking his own life out of deep remorse when it wouldn't just even on the little bit that you've described of being like an angry, yeah. violent man, that seems so unlikely to me. It <laughs> seems so unlikely. So, yeah. uh, I, and it also 
feels like you're being compelled to write this book. And so what for what reason then if there wasn't already, I don't know. Anyway, okay, other question. <laughs> no, I appreciate you affirming that because my, you know, when you talk to even old friends of his, old friends of the person who murdered Crystal, they're all like, not a shot in hell. That guy did not kill himself. His ego was too huge. Like that's, right. that's and ego can be a buffer. Like I've seen this, you know, in vastly different contexts, but I've seen this in when people are really depressed, your ego can actually be really, very life-saving if you, if you have a healthy ego. So mm-hmm. it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I've have to try and not I have to try and be measured and balanced when I'm when I'm being when I'm offering a voice for this story. I have to try and consider I am trying I am considering all points of view and the police theories as well. But there are a, a number of things that led me to believe that he could well be alive. He's he's also possible he didn't kill himself, but he's now dead because 30 years have passed and mm-hmm. he's lived hard and what what have you. But mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so as far as the other question, yeah, I've, I've had such a, it's felt anyway, like I've had such a personal relationship with Crystal and, you know, I actually do write about some of those experiences in the book. And the reason partly is that, or the reason partly why I feel okay doing so is that the family members I have talked to have also shared with me their own experiences that have been, mm-hmm. um, beyond the veil or like seeing her witnessing her after her death and so Mm -hmm. I have felt like you know what I think this is a legitimate part of our experience of death and grief and loss and it's actually as much as many people will dismiss those moments just as many people I think actually have even if they're not remotely woo or don't consider themselves Mm -hmm. religious or spiritual in any way many people do have a fuzziness when it comes to their relationship with death and people that they've known who have crossed over. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I felt in the end that it was fair to represent some of those, those moments that I've seen and that I've heard from, from her family. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, a strange thing to be, to dedicate years to learning all you can about one person. Mm-hmm. And like, she's, you know, my version of her starts to, live with me in my mind and it's not necessarily the the authentic version but it's the version I've reached through just combing through every artifact and archived anything that I can grab of her mm-hmm. and I caught myself thinking a number of times because I was there was a, a, a year happily just before the pandemic like I was very lucky in terms of timing a lot of these interviews because they involved travel mm-hmm. um but there was this concentrated year even a few weeks in 2019 between 2018 and 2019, where I was talking to family a lot and it would be like, okay, now I'm going to talk to this person and this person. And I kept thinking, oh, I can't wait to talk to Crystal. And it was like, oh, soon I'll get to talk to her. And then I would be like, oh, wait, no. (laughs) Or I am this whole time or something, but it's not going to be a formal interview. Um, So I have, like, she has been very alive in my mind and I've had you know, when I I have my own practices for honoring the dead around this time of year as well, at least and getting into October. And I have had a photo of her with a candle, like on that mm-hmm. altar. And I've been honoring her alongside my own ancestors. So mm-hmm. I have had a relationship with her in that way, I would say. Mm, that's beautiful. I know that this project has also, it's been long 
and there's been like bumps in the road and there's been, I don't know if you'd call them setbacks, but it's, it's been bumpy. It hasn't been like the smoothest, um, even just like what you said about the publication date, <laughs> you know, being different. And so what, and plus then the pandemic happened. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do when your creative project isn't flowing the way that you would like it to either because there's blocks or setbacks or like, how do you maintain faith and trust in like the muse and the greater forces when you're like, why am I getting all these headwinds? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for for me, the headwinds, the, the turbulence was really coming from at least in this project, it was really coming from outside the writing process itself. It was like mm-hmm. publication shenanigans or the, at one point I sent a box of ev- evidence, a box of um, items from Mississippi to the RCMP to check for DNA. And the the labs were closed because they wanted the items, but the labs were closed because of the pandemic. And so it was, right. it was like, you know, there were red lights like that. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, like you know, just dealing with people in publishing who were really burnt out from from the pandemic and from the different positions of care that they had to be in, as well as their full time jobs. And mm-hmm. uh, so, in terms of how I've dealt with that, I mean, persistence. I think, and this is this is what I would say for all you know for other writing projects I've done, like for other books I've done, where yeah, the writing itself is ag- not aggravating. It's like I have a very tortured relationship with writing <laughs> I, like, I love I love having written but sometimes just showing up to write feels um I really have to be committed to the process <laughs> um what well, I have two things to say on this though like one maybe it's one thing that it's sort of bifurcating <laughs> but I remember one of the first pieces of advice I got for writing this I think comes actually from a, an essay by Flannery O'Connor and she said that you have to, you have to have a habit of your art. You have to develop a habit of your art. And so, and I'm feeling this now because I've lost the habit. Um, you know, there was a time, there were many years where I, I had so habituated my writing that I had space for it every single day. It was my main work that I could focus on. And so for at least four hours every day, at least Monday to Friday, but often also on weekends, I would dedicate that to my writing. And I would, I would just show up at my desk day after day. And even if, yes, the muses were not there or um, it felt like I was constipated with words and it just wasn't coming out, <laughs> you just have to show up anyway. And you just have to prove to yourself and train yourself that even when the words aren't forthcoming, you're doing the work by just showing up and by just trying and and be forgiving if what comes out is not something that you like the next day. Because just working through it, even if you only write a line or even if you just are editing, you're building that muscle. You're building mm-hmm. that that habit in your brain. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, how I wrote like the my two other books. And it is also how I wrote this book. Um I was going to add something else to that, but I've lost, <laughs> I've lost my train of thought, but I think just, oh yes, I know. Yeah. So having a habit, making a habit of your art. And I guess I, I feel derailed now because I don't have the luxury to spend four hours a day writing. I have a full-time job and sometimes that job is exceeding full-time hours. It's like 
I'm starting very early and I'm ending my day very late some, sometimes, which isn't, that's my own fault, but um, <laughs> like I could have better boundaries around my time. Uh, so I'm, I'm in the process of trying to rebuild that habit into my life. Mm. Um, but I guess my main answer is persistence and, and just showing up no matter what mm. and self-compassion within that. Mm-hmm. And so where does magic intersect with your writing? Like, are, are there spells you cast or rituals you do maybe at the outset of, of a project or maybe, you know, when you sit down to write, like how do you, how does that show up? Yeah. I love this question. Cause I do think that magic and creativity are really linked. They are for me like this, I'm speaking to you from my writing desk, but this is also the space where I practice other, other arts. <laughs> so it's, it's literally like in this, in this room, in this space, I, it, it is a blended together. And for me, that's important. Like my, I consider them all arts. Um, so I, when you ask that question too, I think of when I was first starting writing and I, I, I think I had almost a superstition around it because of what I explained to you. It wasn't a long time coming. I was never going to be a writer. It was the last thing I was going to be. And so when I started and I started writing stories, I thought, oh, well, what if that's the last story? What if I don't have any more ideas? What if I'm just drought after this? <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I think I was, you know, in like a first year writing class. And this was a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago. It was... Um, 11 or 12 years ago, I guess, 12 years ago. Um, and I, I did a ritual that was um, like invoking the muses and I didn't really know what I was doing at the time, but I lit some candles and I, it was some kind of like, dear muses, please do not like, don't abandon me. <laughs> don't, don't abandon me now. Keep the ideas flowing. I welcome you. There was some kind of ritual that I performed around that, that I just, I wasn't, I didn't even really identify as a witch at that time, but it was always, like I said, in my, in my ether. Um, but now, I mean, I do certainly use, first of all, electoral astrology to come back to your other questions. So I do mm-hmm. always, like if I'm sending work out, it's always timed. Mm-hmm. I do also time the beginning of a project. So mm-hmm. I will, um, if I'm, if I'm starting a new book, I would be very mindful about the moment where I like begin open the document and write the first line Mm -hmm. but beyond that too I mean I work with so Mercury or Hermes is the Mercury is the planet and Hermes is the um, the Greek counterpart who's the deity that rules writing and 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 communication and all of these things so I will um sometimes invoke Mercury I actually uh, have at my desk I made um a mercurial oil that was on a on a moment that was auspicious for Mercury. And so I will actually, it's one of my rituals to put this oil on mm. before I am writing. And mm. whether it's placebo effect or not, I do find it helps. <laughs> I have actually a statue of Mercury at my at my desk. Mm. The, the audience can't see this, but Carmen can see <laughs> my little yeah, Hermes. It's very cute. <laughs> yeah. Um and then, yeah, I mean, there are other things that I would do as well, but certainly, especially I would say if I felt like I was in a dry patch, I might do some kind of ritual around that just to, 
to welcome inspiration in. Um, I've, <laughs> I will say too, I will admit that I've done, um, I need to be careful who <laughs> listens to this podcast, but you know, I had to, I had to engage with um, RCMP a lot while writing this book. And I did some magic with Deneb El Getty, who is the fixed star that relates to law and justice. And mm. it was striking. <laughs> really? After I started applying, I, I was using Deneb El Getty oil also from Sphere and Sundry and then doing mm-hmm. certain invocations and the, um, relationship with RCMP dramatically changed for at least in the, in that period while I was, while I was using that oil and working with that force. So Mm, that's a great endorsement (laughs) of of like working the magic. So is Hermes the main deity that you work with or are there other, um, or you mentioned the muses sort of, but are there, is there anyone else that you might suggest that listeners um, call on for other forms or just general forms of creativity, not just writing? Yeah. So certainly Mercury or Hermes, if you're working with words, um, there are gods from other pantheons as well, like Thoth, I would include within that. Um, uh, the sun, any solar deity, any solar mm-hmm. god or goddess, it's all about, you know, how you're shining, how you're... Um, how you're how you're seen also but there's Mm -hmm. a lot I think like self-expression itself is so solar to me so Mm -hmm. working with the sun itself working with Helios if you're if you're using the Orphic hymns for example Mm -hmm. um there the deity that I do work with closely though is from the Celtic pantheon and that's Bridget and Bridget Mm -hmm. is is a solar deity and one of the she presides over many things one of them is um one of them is poetry and and bards. So there is like mm-hmm. a direct line with creative expression with words and Bridget that I've kind mm-hmm. of been trying to tap into or honor in some way. Mm, that's beautiful. Okay, the last question on the Numinous podcast, you've sort of alluded to it perhaps a little bit already, but how do you cope with grief and rage? Yeah, how do I cope with grief and grief and rage? I think it I think it varies. Um but there's one practice <laughs> that I've started or this is actually a class and I'm not even trying to deal with grief and rage, but I find it's a good like catharsis for it. And so this is a it's actually a movement class in um that I take at a, a place in Montreal and it's like how to describe it it's like a non macho boot camp for witches is kind of how i describe it i don't know if how i don't think that the person who runs it would describe it this way maybe she would i'm not sure but (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot it's about um it uses really repetitive movement to very very um all-encompassing music it's great if there's live music but or a live DJ even, but just the music is kind of all around you. And you're doing this repetitive movement that it, at first it seems very simple and fairly easy, but after, you know, four or five minutes of the song, it's like quite, quite, um, quite a workout actually. But Mm -hmm. in, as you build that energy, you're in the room with many other people, many of whom are are women. And there are just moments where she guides you to like, to scream, (laughs) 
or a shout. Mm. And it's so, I'm so interesting to have, you know, a room full of people. I started this before the pandemic and I actually just went to my first big room class like a few weeks ago and it was mm-hmm. such a difference from doing it on Zoom. But um, mm. to be in a room full of bodies, just like building heat, literally building heat. And then like also just letting sounds come out of their throats. Wow. <laughs> it, it's so cathartic. And, you know, some of the movements are like, you're kind of, it's almost kickboxy parts of it and not, not mm-hmm. other parts. Other parts just seem like you're just rubbing your hands and mm. over like a cauldron is how it feels to me. But um, what does she call this? How? What did you see online that you or you know what pamphlet did you come across that you were like, <laughs> I need this? <laughs> like and like what? Yeah, how did that? What? Yeah, I mean, I I'm sure that this has a name. The whole thing has a name, and I just don't know what it is, but. It's, so the class is called Ultime. It's in Montreal, so it's French. Um, it's at Studio Studio Maland for anyone in Montreal. <laughs> but I knew I loved the teacher. Like the teacher, okay. um, her name is Chloe. She's done other movement classes that I just really resonated with. And she herself is, I think she would say she's witchy. I'm not sure how she identifies in, with regards to that, but she's witchy to me. So, mm-hmm. um, but I just thought like, I just thought I'd give it a try. And then as soon as I did it, I was hooked. And it's, mm-hmm. it was, it's very much so about being in a room of other people and that the energy just building, it feels like, it feels like ritual in a way, like a movement ritual mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. I, I would have to be outside at this time mm. of, yeah. of the world uh, to be able to do that. But I think it's wonderful that you've found a space that is, like you said, it's cathartic and it's also ritualistic and you're also getting a workout. It sounds like it sounds like a really great way to move big emotions through the body. Yeah. 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 I also great. just, most of the time I do it by myself, literally right here in front of my computer, but it's not quite the same. <laughs> right, right, right. As like building the energy and the sound together for sure. Well, thank you so much for everything you've shared, Eliza. This is very, it's, you know, uh, I was just saying in a different interview that um, I will never, I am an author, but I will like never call myself a writer because I know real writers and you are one of the real writers that I know. <laughs> so I'm, I feel like very special that I know you. So thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Well, it's my honor. And I feel like you should 100% give yourself permission to call yourself a writer. <laughs> I see you as a writer as well as an author, as well as many other things. Hmm. Well, that that person in that interview did say, well, you know, my grandma always said, never say never. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe, maybe by, if I write three books or four books, maybe somewhere down the road, I'll be like, yes, and I'm a writer. I just cannot see it. I can't see that. I, I know, no. <laughs> I'm still like a very like full body no like no I have written some things and I have authored a cookbook but I I know real writers and you're a real writer and I cannot wait to read your real book when it's in my hot little hand so um, good luck with that and thank you so much for being here thank you Carmen it's my pleasure I am so excited for Eliza's presentation at Witches New Year this year. Uh, She is going to present a talk called Co-Creating with the Cosmos, Astrology for 2023. 
You can find more information about her upcoming book, uh, Cosmic Tonic and Witch's New Year by going to the show notes at numinouspodcast.com. The listener shout out today is to the New Westminster Public Library in New Westminster, BC. Whoever is ordering books there specifically, I see online that the good people of New West will be able to check out the Spirited Kitchen as soon as it's available. You've already got it listed. This is so heartwarming for me. So if any listeners of anywhere in the world are library patrons, you should ask your library to bring it in for you. Apparently some libraries are doing it already. I think truly that the the Spirited Kitchen will be a year-round waitlist kind of title because, you know, it's about the wheel of the year. It's not just like a Halloween or Christmas title that will be like wildly popular for a couple of months and then just take up shelf space the rest of the year. So if you use the library and you're keen on supporting my upcoming book, will you ask them to bring it in? I think they'll love it for their Halloween and holiday displays. And it won't just be like a placeholder for two holidays. It'll be in high demand year round. I truly believe that. And I would appreciate it so much myself, but I think also other witches and like witch adjacent and witch curious people would love to discover a book like this and libraries and librarians are how we discover new books. So thank you to the librarians at the New Westminster Public Library. I really appreciate you and um, thanks for believing in my book. The Spirited Kitchen is available for pre-order online, but also from your local independent bookseller. You might just have to ask them to bring it in if they've never heard of it. And if you're in Canada, you can order from monroesbooks.com and get 20% off your pre-order and they'll ship it to you. Then, no matter where you buy it, if you pre-order, bring your receipt back to my website and you'll receive your instant bonus downloads. And remember, if you order three copies or more, you'll get a free ticket to Witches New Year, which is happening October 15th and 16th. So just go to the cookbook tab at carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Submit your receipt. We'll send you bonuses. And if uh, you've gotten three books, we will send you a free ticket. Until next time, my friends, take care. <laughs>